0: Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. We are a program that is sponsored by Franklin Public Radio, and you can find us on Facebook at the wonderful world of wine.
1: wine, wine.
0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine. Kim and I are here to explore all things wine with you. How are you, Kim?
2: I'm doing fine. How are about yourself, Mark?
0: Everything is great. And once again, today we have a special guest. We're joined by Sheila Donahue, the founder and CEO of Vero Wines. Sheila, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Mark and Kim.
0: It's good to have you. And we've been following you online and we've talked in the past offline here. And can you just please tell us in our listeners your background and about your company, Vero Wine?
1: So, yeah, about my background, I'm a New Yorker that's been living in Italy for over 20 years. I have 30 years in um, banking and technology. And uh, during my time in, in Italy, while I was working in banking and technology, I became a sommelier. You know, I just enjoy uh, the discovery of, of wine, but also food. And certainly Italy is a mecca for that. <laughs> and then I had a year of sabbatical in, um, in two, 2017, in which I had the opportunity, at, just with a clean slate, to define a, a new life and career for me and i didn't intentionally want to go into the wine industry but during that year sabbatical i that's what the, the path was was leading me to i suppose i was following my passion you could say also an interest and passion in in innovating and helping small companies that have something really nice to offer so i founded vero vino in 2018 to uh, seek out and import in wines and olive oils from small farmers that were uh, missing
2: from the U.S. market. We talk a lot about sort of the many, many ways that people get involved in the wine industry, and it's always so interesting to me to hear. It's like person after person after person. They're individual stories, everybody sort of comes at it with a different background or you, you know, you started in a, another industry, but there was always this sort of underlying interest or passion. And I think that your story where you were in a different industry and then you're like, and I became a sommelier. <laughs> it's like, we <laughs> hear that an awful lot. Like there's just this something about wine that really draws people to it. And I love this idea of innovation and doing something new and searching for these things that aren't available in our market. And it's one of these things that it's hard with the way that we sell and distribute and get wines into people's hands in the United States, that there's so much out there that we don't really have the opportunity to see and taste.
1: Yeah. I mean, I subsequently learned a lot about the the U.S. market with yeah. wine, which uh, really I my, was an eye opening experience. I could tell you some stories, but I, I must say this: there is a, a sort of like a geeky element with wine, and because I was working in banking, credit risk management, technology was very like analytical type of very structural type of job. I, I think the industry tends to draw kind of uh, people that um, are. Are analytical, let's say, and love facts and discovery
2: and stuff yeah. like that. It kind of draws all kinds, right? Like there are some people who are exactly that way. And it's like, oh, give me another class that I can take and kind of absorb more information. And I think that there is, it's so broad that it's open to people who have all sorts of skills and all sorts of, you know, kind of mindsets when it comes to wine. Yeah. But definitely appeals to, to those of us out there who are self, uh, self-proclaimed geeks, I will say. <laughs>
0: it said that, and I believe I got this maybe from your website, but it said that less than 1% of wines make it to the U.S. shelves. So I wanted to ask you, it took myself a long time in the wine world to kind of get an understanding of the differences in the value of small production, authentic wines. And I'm curious, where did you discover the passion to seek the, those products out and, and how did you find them?
1: Well, I was fortunate to be in Italy, where there's so many. Like most of the people making wine are, are small. They're people farming their land and are following a tradition per generations. That's really what my, what's my background in the wine industry. You know, initially. Then when I started to, uh, after I actually came up with the idea for for my my business, I kind of found started to discover these facts like the one that you know that you that you cited. And let's just say it, it's not, let's just face it, like wine, especially if you're talking about wine in a bottle, it's not easy to even just to deliver that. You know, it's a product that's breakable and you know, you need to be careful with the temperature and stuff like that. It's heavy. So I, I get why it is difficult to get a certain wine into your local store also because of <laughs> limited shelf space and stuff like that. So when I started my company I, I during that year of sabbatical I was trying to figure out a way a business model that would be successful for small producers because it is a, an economies of scale business. And so came up with this business model in which really the only limitations would be a legal limitation. And so uh, I established my, my business in California so that way I could deliver direct to consumer more easily. However, the model is omnichannel so we were seeking out distributors state by state and you know wine stores and restaurants where we self distribute which is in in California and then I also do the selling in in the state of New York under a uh, um, a certain distributor. And then also, we we get the word out that that's essential, like the label does, doesn't do it justice. And actually focusing on small producers has a lot of benefits from you know, different perspectives. But one is that the, the stories are, are fantastic. You don't have to invent a story. You just have to ask a couple of questions and then unfolds a, a really interesting and beautiful background.
2: Um, Who's going to ask what your presence in Massachusetts is like? Since that's where we are, <laughs> although we do yeah. have listeners all over the place. What's going on here in Mass?
1: So we have a um, ambassador. Her name is Helen Gallo. Uh, I know you might. Okay, good.
2: <laughs> a small world. It, you know, <laughs> the wine industry is a very small world. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, she has.
1: Such great experience in very long uh, career in wine, import and distribution, and, you know, especially in in New England. So she has been and is trying to find a distributor for us in Massachusetts. Uh So as uh, just getting it out there to the universe, (laughs) whoever's going to be listening to this podcast, please contact me again. Our website, I don't think we mentioned our website. It's FarrellDino.com. So Um, we have a contact us form on our website and just reach out to us even for suggestions. Like sometimes we get distributors contacting us because a a wine store really like wants one of the wines that we have Mm -hmm. and, and they'll they'll reach out to a distributor who reach out to us.
2: So just to give our Um, listeners a quick refresher on what we are talking about with distribution, we, uh, Wine works, alcohol works in general as under this system called the three tiered system, which means that an importer like yourself, Sheila, would have to sell to a company in our own state who would then sell to restaurants and retailers before it could get into you, the consumer's hands. So it's got to go through those different tiers before it can get to a customer. So that is what we're talking about, about a distributor, where she's talking about a uh, kind of that middle level before uh, it can
0: be sold to a store so that then you can
2: uh, go out and buy it.
0: Yeah. Now that Kim mentioned that, Sheila, I'd like to get your opinion on dealing with three tier states and dealing with state. Uh, do you have any opinion as an importer of wine? Thoughts on how you know you, the things you go through. I know you, you said you had a lot of stories based on that, but what's your overall opinion on the battle you face?
1: Yeah, well, as I said, getting a wine to your local wine store or restaurant is difficult independent of the three tier system. <laughs> and I have to say that I, I was a, a little ingenuous initially. <laughs> I thought, hey, you know, the US market will be clamoring for these. You know, really good, interesting, you know, farm to to glass wines. But that's not the case. It is a crowded market. So fast forward to this year, I, in April, Helen and I had a stand at the WSWA conference, which is the largest distributor conference in America. And we happened to uh, casually meet uh, the woman that's their head, like legal colleague that whose main job is lobbying for distributors. And I told her, I'm like, you need distributors because they're the people that know the restaurants and wine stores and that will develop those relationships. And Even explain the wines that we have, even though on our website and social media and and YouTube and all that, we do a lot of of the explanations, but still just even doing organizing the tasting and explaining, you know, why this wine is Mm -hmm. so special, even from a taste perspective. That's a lot of value add. The thing I must say about the state of Massachusetts that I find annoying is that it's an at rest state and not all states are like that. So when it's not an at rest state like New York, I can ship the wine directly from our warehouse in California, which is our national warehouse and ship it direct to a wine store or a restaurant in New York that's efficient as it could be, let's say, especially for a wine that is new to the New York market. And so that's currently what we do for, for, for New York State. But in Massachusetts, being an at rest state, it means that I cannot ship the wine direct to you, Mark. <laughs> It has to, uh, from what I understand in terms of the law, it has to physically somehow stop by the distributor in Massachusetts mm-hmm. before it gets to Mark's door. And what happens is that just creates inefficiencies that um, that really w- limit the the possibilities of what we can do in Massachusetts until we have a distributor that that will actually hold the inventory in right. you know in the
2: state. Yeah, that one extra step in the middle there.
1: Yeah, and yeah. it's—I'm sure, like the, the state, you know, your, your state has has limited choices when it comes to small production wines because of that.
0: Yeah, and it adds to the cost too. But he wants their little money for holding it for you too, so it adds cost in there.
2: You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find more information about Mark at his website, franklinlickers.com, and more information about myself at commonwealthwineschool.com. You can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes, and we are supported by Franklin Public Radio. This week, we are speaking to our special guest, Sheila Donahue, and her website is verovino.com. Hello, and welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are here with our special guest, Sheila. Mark and I have been asking her some questions about her import company, which focuses on small producers. And did you start with Italian wines and then sort of expand from there? So what's kind of the makeup of not only Only the types of wineries that you represent, but kind of where they located in the world.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's a heavy uh, Italian, heavy portfolio because of my fact that I still like live there. It's where I became a sommelier, and I also became a an official uh, Italian wine ambassador with a Vin Italy international program. Hmm. And, oh, and then also because I, I speak their language too. That's helpful. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely helps. And then slowly we started to, and we have been expanding to include other countries. And I do have to say that the impetus was, um, were, were clients that, you know, said, hey, I want wine from, you know, Spain um, or Portugal, etc." cetera so that is frankly the driver for expanding into other markets because of that is a sort of a it's somewhat a a market-driven model where there are requests then i'll respond to it we I have a client in LA who asked for a a Brachetto d'Aqui. That's a a, a aromatic uh, red, sweet sparkling wine from Piedmont, and um, and that that put me on a a hunt. It's like foraging, Mm. (laughs) and I wind up finding this small producer that's four generations, uh, Ivaldi. And then I not only did I taste his Brachetto. But then I also tasted the other wines that he had. And then, you know, and then we brought in really most of his wines. I just want to add something about that braquetto that we got in a year ago, that it is on uh, Vine Pears top 13 sweet wines of 2023. Very cool. So that is very gratifying for a couple of reasons. So one is that it was never in the US before until a year ago. But also, I think one of the the value adds that personally provide is it's almost like I feel that not only are there certain wines that are, are missing from the US market, but also certain styles. I think that the selection of sweet wines in America isn't that good. We actually have two of the thirteen on that list you know, of sweet wines. And so I, I feel, you know, there's another value add is we're just introducing, you know, categories of wines that are are missing as well.
2: Mm -hmm. You do have a a section on your website that that shows like for reviews and, you know, what top 100 lists or top 10 lists or whatever, and how many of your wines have have ended up there of late. And it seems very positive that for a company like your own, which is mainly self-distributing, that you've started to get some of this attention and the realization that wow the wines in your portfolio really are something to talk about and something to support. So I saw that and I'm like, "Oh, that's really cool. Like good for them." Very mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. exciting. Thank,
0: thank you for mentioning the uh, briquetto cuz that's my case wine I have in my house all the time. I
2: really like briquetto <laughs> too. Yeah. Oh, it's so yummy.
0: <laughs> what is for it? those what? of us who
2: spent any time in northern Italy, you know, those uh red sweet sparkling things are uh Definitely something that are attached to a lot of good memories, let's say.
0: The wine of seduction, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: Well, or it's just I, uh, something easy to drink when you're 19 years old. <laughs>
0: Shh, don't tell anybody. Yeah.
1: I brought that wine to a, a Cinco de Mayo party at my colleagues like home association in, in California. And there were like, you know, there, there were a number of people there that don't drink wine. And I had them try the Bracchetto and
2: they loved it. It'd probably yeah. be really good with some spicy Mexican. <laughs> yeah.
0: So Sheila, tell us, what's the process when you import in the, into the U.S.? What, you, what do you have to do? Like, I'm a huge wine label geek. Do you have to do all the submission to the TTB for everything that you're bringing in and, and all the paperwork or the wineries have to do that to get it to you? Here.
1: Yeah, no, we do that. So, uh, you know, I tell people there's a, a lot of complexity, a lot going on under the hood in, mm-hmm. in this uh, business. So, um, yeah, so basically what I work with, with the producers is I, I don't, I, I just, I'll just take whatever front label that they have, I don't ask them to change it. And of course, I, uh, you know, I make suggested changes to the back labels. So that way they get, you know, they get approval from the government. that. Procedure is really uh, can be really time consuming and a bit frustrating because of all the parties involved. So basically, it's not just myself uh, using U.S. government system dealing with the producer but also the producer has to usually rely on a graphic artist to make the changes and that just adds a layer of complication to it Uh, and it's also been quite costly with inflation and especially last year I guess there was a shortage of paper and um, so it's been a very difficult trying to manage a timeline with uh, importing all these like Details and, and issues, you know, un- unexpected issues as well that you
2: know that can come you
1: with know, that happen.
0: I was just going to ask is it, that must be a lot of planning on your part where you have to get all the producers, all the stuff together over there in Italy, and then container. You must try to get one container over the U.S., right? So you have to get it all together and all that paperwork involved.
1: It is uh, very complicated and. I normally, what I do, um, at least with the Italian wines, um, because there's enough volume in which we can, you know, we can fill up a container. I, I try to plan that. For when I'm actually in Italy, because even with the, the time zone zone difference, it's easier to deal with. This year, however, I was dealing with all that complication while I was in America. And I do have to say it did add extra time, in particular, on the part of the, the process in which logistics Company had to coordinate the pickups of the wine from all the different wineries. So normally that would take maybe maximum two weeks. This time around, it took like a month, and there was uh, it was just really, really bad. And I must say, it wasn't just because I was getting all the information late. It was just it was primarily a logistics company that was dropping the ball a lot. <laughs> And in fact, uh, the container came in late because of lo- lo- those logistics problems. And then there were strikes in mm. the, uh, the, the L.A. ports. Uh, I'm not sure if it's, they're still happening. Hopefully not. But even one or two days of strike will just uh, cause uh, delays. And so there's at least a four-day
2: delay now in getting the container I think this is nice for our listeners to hear because you know we hear about these things on the news, and I think sometimes it takes a little bit of a time of time for people to understand like how does this thing I'm hearing about on the news have real real world implication for me? But it does when you are going to the store and you want to buy something and it's not on the shelf. And this is you know the realization of all of these things in our world are interconnected. Even wine, so you know it's not just about the flavor and how it goes with your food and whatever. But it's a real part of the economy. And I think it's nice to remind people about that every once in a while.
1: Yeah, one of my kind of stories uh, I, I tell people, and this was in the fall of 2021, which was a, a much worse time in terms of um, you know the supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. And so I was relying on this logistics company to handle the end-to-end delivery. So delivering it to my warehouse in California and then knew about the blockage at the ports, right? We'd ask the logistics company every couple of days, what's going on? And then once they got the containers to the port there was more delays and then i call up the logistics company and they said well we can't find a trucking company Ugh. i and he said if you can get a trucking company then by all means organize it so i'm in my office in california i see a truck go by i flag it down and the, <laughs> and i ask the guy can you help my containers down in la can you bring it up he said i can't help you but my brother." as a trucking company. And I I call his brother. His brother says, well, you know, it's not a good time, blah, blah, blah. But since you're my brother's friend, Uh, (laughs) I was so lucky, really.
0: It's all uh, timing. And I'm glad you mentioned stories again, Sheila, because Kim and I, I mean, we talk all the time on this show about the stories behind the wine, how it helps sell the wine and your whole company is based on maybe, as you said, geeky wines and great stories. So can you tell us, like, what is your best wine story?
1: So one that comes to mind is the story from my perspective is I went to my friend's house uh, for for dinner at Christmas, I think in 2017. And one of our friends brought this uh, really interesting uh, Pet Nat, you know, sparkling wine. And I was, uh, you know, I, I liked it. I found it different. And it was written Boscara on the front, on the front label. So I managed to hunt down the, uh, the producer. And he um, he told me Boscara is the grape. It's a really rare grape. He wasn't interested actually in, in exporting at the time. In fact, even I asked him, how can I buy a bottle? I would have had to come up to the winery to buy a bottle. And they're in Veneto. The producer is uh, Zanon. And so it's basically the same region as the Prosecco wine region where this grape grows. In any case, fast forward to uh, 2021, I reached out to him again. And fortunately, this time around, he was interested. And so we imported it in the wine last year. It's Mosquera Petnat. And there's only 15 acres of it in the world. And as far as I know, there's only two producers and the other producer isn't in America. So I think
2: we were the first to import the grape into America. Wow. (laughs) See, that's a story. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to ask you how you choose or how you decide either which producers to work with or which individual wines to bring in. We get the question every once in a while of, well, if I like this wine, how am I going to find another one that I'm going to like? And one of the ways that we can tell people is, well, if you've tasted a bunch of things from a particular importer, And you like sort of the style of things that they bring in, then flip the wine over, look at the back label, see who the importer is, and maybe go with something else from them in the future. And I I know that that doesn't always work because you might not be bringing things in based on sort of a, a style profile that you're looking for, but these other sort of the background stories and how long they've been around and how are they farming and sort of these other factors. So I was just curious about how you make that decision of who to bring in to the United States.
1: So, yeah, I can give you like an example um, of last year and the summer. I wasn't able to do a whole lot of traveling last summer. My home was in Bologna, but I did want to find some more producers so I am a member of the uh, Dona del Vino Association, Woman of Wine Association. So I just kind of went through the member list and called up producers. One of my first questions, frankly, are they already in the U.S.? And not that we we wouldn't import a wine in that wasn't in the U.S. yet. But that is a pretty strong criteria for us because we want it to be a complete full discovery. And also our model, our business model works best if we are the national importers for these producers as well. So in any case, uh, you know, I'll ask them that, I'll ask them their farming method. And, And one of the Big things I like. This wasn't initially such a a criteria, but most recently it has. I ask if they ferment with uh, native yeast or if they add yeast to to help with the fermentation. The reason why I I ask that question is personally I find a wine that is made with native yeast fermentation is more interesting. It, It expresses the terroir much better. But then also a number of our Wine store and and, and restaurant clients will only want uh, wines that are made with native yeast fermentation. So having more of that in our portfolio will open more, more doors. Otherwise, I, I'm we're kind of like limited a bit in um, in terms of those to so whom we can sell those wines. Hmm. Then the next step is visiting the winery getting to know the winery owners who are typically the people that are farming their land. They're very hands-on. They're uh, making the wine every so often. They'll have some sort of consultant that is like a a winemaker. Let's say it's more of a technical winemaker, but the people actually doing the job is usually the winery owners. From there, I taste the wines and then I find out how much they cost. So the, the wines have to be also a, re- a reasonable price and I say reasonable all of our wines are premium however I don't want them to be like way like to like over the top expensive then it's difficult to sell as well and then probably the final thing is really can I really work with this producer we're like partners you know and we're partners for daily for many years I mean, my company's five years old now and hopefully it'll just going. So I'm, you know, I'm looking for, for wineries that will, you know, will, will be working with us years to come. So the relationship aspect is also really important.
2: And that's something that I, I think we hear time and time again about the wine industry is that so much of it is about that personal connection whether it's from the ground up and from the very start of the production process at the winery and in the vineyard all the way to mark's end of things where you have someone actually putting the bottle in somebody's hand to take home to drink yeah it's very interesting that you have all of these I, I hesitate to call them criteria but you've got sort of steps along the way and you have things that need to fit in order for the winery and their wines to
0: kind of fit what you're looking for
2: that's that's good information thank you
0: yeah, and the yeast one is interesting for sure. Yeah,
2: that I was not expecting that. <laughs> but, yeah. but it does kind of go along with it seems like your philosophy just from seeing some of your value statements on your website is you know you're looking for these small producers that use a lot of either organic or biodynamic or sustainable farming methods and I think the yeast thing kind of goes along with that.
1: Yeah, and I do want to say that in general focusing on small producers there's a lot of benefits to it i mentioned before about the stories um that are behind them but another aspect is that they are farming their own land and they are treating their land in the best way possible. They also are making a product that they're going to be drinking. It's going to be on their right. dinner table. They're going to be serving it to their family and guests. So it's going to be, be a wine also made with the minimal, you know, intervention.
2: Yeah. It's with- like home cooking, but on a different scale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sheila, let's talk briefly. Vera Wines, you import and sell olive oil. Can you just briefly tell our listeners the real connection with wine and olive oil and what they should know about olive oil?
1: Yeah. So I started to import in olive oil because when I initially moved to Italy and I would come back to family, you know, functions, uh, showers, and all that kind of stuff, I would bring with me some really nice bottle of extra virgin olive oil. And we would like serve it at the party, whether it was like some sort of caprese salad or whatever, you know, or with bread. And people would just really, really like it. And so I realized that these really good olive oils are are missing, you know, from from the U.S. market. I mean, of course, there are some, you know, you can find. One of the problems with uh, olive oil is there's good extra virgin olive oil and there's so so extra virgin olive oil. And a lot of Americans think, you know, if it's just extra virgin olive oil, then it's the same independent of a brand or a producer that you you buy. And that's definitely not the same, it's definitely not true. And so I'd say to know if you're really buying a really good olive oil isn't easy either. It's even harder, I think, for olive oil than, than to want. But I think getting to know Olive oil is a whole other world, like getting to appreciate wine. Even just like the choices of olives that they use to make an olive oil is something that goes into the process of making like a really good, you know, extra virgin olive oil. The way that you you taste the an olive oil and access it is similar to wine tasting. The only thing that doesn't count is the color. So, and then another thing that I've learned is you have an olive oil that's made from one type of olive that we, we do. We have uh, an olive oil that we're actually going to be um. Having people sample today here at Wine Fair in San Francisco, and it's producer's La Maliosa, and the the olive oil is called Calatra. It is uh, made from one type of olive oil, and it has the highest level of polyphenols you can find. In, you can't find an olive oil like this anywhere really. And what I mean by polyphenols is the the characteristic of olive oil that a makes it healthy, but b g- gives it taste. And when I say taste, it's like when you taste an olive oil you want um, a good olive oil in general uh, when you swallow it so you actually like take a sip and you swallow the olive oil if, if it makes you cough that means that it's a, a good olive oil but if it makes you cough like a lot that means it's really good <laughs> so uh so yeah this calatra it, it won a, an award for the best organic extra virgin olive oil in tuscany I, I remember the first time i got it i um like just plain lettuce um, And I put a little bit of the palitra over with a little bit of salt, and it transformed the flavor of the salad. And it's so healthy, you know, instead of just using all these dressings and stuff
2: like that, it's really good for you. Mm, Making me hungry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Kim's a big foodie, so I'm sure she appreciated all that. I love food,
2: (laughs) Italian food in general.
0: Sheila, we thank you for uh, joining us. I know you're actually, so the listeners know, you'd mentioned it. you're actually working at a show right now in San Francisco. So you took the time to talk with us and the listeners. We really appreciate it. It was great hearing your story. And I hope the listeners head to your website at uh, virovino.com and also check out your social media on Instagram and and YouTube. I believe it's Vero Vino Gusto is how they find you on that. Mm -hmm. And you have great yes. education videos on YouTube. I enjoy, and you talk about some unique grapes and regions. A really good educational thing for people who want to learn more about wines in general. So we yeah, appreciate and I that.
1: encourage people to get our on our newsletter as well. We write, you know, our own uh, articles. We publish them about like once a week, and um, so it's a great way, even just to to learn about you know wines and. Foods and places and
0: people. <laughs> and you just did a good article about the floods in Italy. I was enjoying that. Right. Well, not enjoying it, but it was a good <laughs> update to hear what's going on. So, yes. Thank you for joining us today on the wonderful world of wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. Today, we had a special guest, Sheila Donahue. Vero Wines. You can find her at VeroVino.com. For more information about Kim, she's at CommonwealthWineschool.com. You can find myself at FranklinLiquors.com. We are on Twitter at Wine Education. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Wonderful World of Wine. And our past episodes are on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers. Cheers. Wine, wine, wine.